Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love in the world. And boy, oh boy, do we have a fun one to talk about today. We are talking about one of my favorite, probably favorite horror movies of the past 20 years one of my favorite movies period of the past 20 years this is one of those movies that was just was absolutely made for me i love everything about it and it's it's one of those that's not universally beloved so this was an absolute shoe-in for a show like this and i am talking of course about the 2009 sam raimi horror movie drag me to hell which is a it's, it's a fun family movie. We're gonna we're gonna get into this one. This is a this is a fun one. I haven't done a, a horror movie in a while, so it's good to get back on my uh, my stomping grounds here. And speaking of my stomping grounds, I am bringing back one of my favorite co-hosts, one of my most popular co-hosts. In fact, he did a uh, an early episode of Staff Picks called The Invitation, which is to this day still one of the four or five episodes that I get the most feedback about that people really liked that episode and appreciated it. So I am so excited to bring him back. He is my number one horror sidekick, the black-hearted horror himself, Matt Carter. Glad to be back, Mario. That's a, how could I follow that introduction? Oh man, you got you put a lot of pressure here. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is an episode I've really been looking forward to for a long time because again, this movie dragged me to hell, near and dear to my heart. And I, I've talked about it before with Sam Raimi movies. I I did uh, The Quick and the Dead, one of my favorite movies, and then this one, another one of my Sam Raimi movies. So I have I've been searching high and low for just the right co-host for this one, Matt. So again, no pressure. Welcome back. Oh. Yeah, no pressure at all. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just the greatest, one of the greatest horror directors of all time in one of his funniest and darkest and most twisted movies with one of the endings that I would call one of the top five horror endings of all time. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we got nothing on the plate here to worry about. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of nothing to worry about, uh, first, why don't you remind people what you do for a living and just what kind of a weird little psychopath you are? And I think it would be fun to let you explain what happened as we were setting up this podcast. I think people would appreciate hearing that. Okay, so uh, my name is Matt Carter. As Mario has given the wonderful introduction, I am am an author of horror and sci-fi and... uh, do some freelance editing and writing on the side as well. Uh, The long and the short of it, I have been a horror fan my entire life. I have been conscious of being a horror fan since I was a teenager. But that's all secondary to the wackiness we've had today trying to get this podcast together because it just so happens to be my birthday. And, you know, birthdays are usually joyous occasions, but I have stopped having my birthdays with strangers or friends for the past so some about five six years because before then every time i tried to involve other people in my birthdays stuff would go wrong you know easy stuff at first like people wouldn't show up or strange people would show up and then you know my friend nearly died trying to visit me on my birthday one time so after that i called off you know celebrating my birthday with other people and then you know i finally come here with mario we start to record a few minutes ago, and then, what do you know, both of us have simultaneous, completely different computer problems that shut us down for about 20 minutes before we could get recording. So my birthday curse has come to you, and dear listeners, it may be spreading to you, so have a good one. But 
It seems it seems kind of a perfect happenstance for a movie that's about curses. So I think we're actually on a, a very interesting beginning here. Yeah, it seems the Lamia is already tormenting this episode of Taft Picks. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you have a goat with you, Matt? Uh, just in case I need to, you know, get the Lamia out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, again, we are doing a movie literally about people being cursed, and already this episode is cursed. I've had the most technical difficulties I've had on episode in like four months, so I'm sure no harm will befall us as we're doing the rest of the show. No, and yeah, you know, this isn't, you know, as I actually have in my notes here, this isn't one of those ring-like curses. So if you listen to this and anything bad starts to happen, it's not going to take seven days. This will only take three days. Do you hear me, gypsies? You cannot shut down my show. God himself could not sink this ship. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to be backing away from Mario here quietly and uh, you know, making all sorts of various symbols. And Okay, we've gotten to an interesting beginning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's describe this movie for people who have never seen it before. I'll just give a quick little overview. I have said before that uh, Sam Raimi is my favorite film director. There's really two that I like. I like James Cameron and I like Sam Raimi for entirely different reasons. And this, to me, is the ultimate Sam Raimi movie. I mean, if you like this guy's style and his spirit and just the the weird, spazzy energy he throws into making a movie, I would say this is like the definitive Sam Raimi movie, which I'm sure Matt has plenty to say about because I'm kind of uh, blaspheming Evil Dead 1 and 2. But please feel free to step in here. What, do you, what would you have to say about Mr. Raimi? I would say he is one of the most talented directors of all time, mostly because of his audacity. You look at the original Evil Dead, he was doing insane, insane things on a budget that shouldn't have been able to uh, accommodate them. But nobody can tell this guy no. And that is one of the most refreshing things about him. If he has something in his crazy mind, you are going to see it. If he if he wants to have blood running down the screen, you're going to see blood running down the screen. If he wants to have, you know, a, a sporting movie about cowboys shooting each other, you're going to get a sporting movie about cowboys shooting each other. If he wants to make one of the greatest superhero franchises of all times, you're going to see it. There, Sam Raimi sets out... Whenever Sam Raimi sets out to do something, he is going to do it, and you are going to see it. And more like often than not, it will be very, very fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, and this is something I really wanted to bring up, because I, I, I think I brought it up in The Quick and the Dead. And again, Sam Raimi is known for making these really, really ultra-violent, ultra-crazy, gory, slapsticky, you know splatter movies and it, that sounds worse than it is because yeah i don't know if people know much about him i've read books about this guy i've read interviews his like his heroes in life are the three stooges and that's like that's the thing with sam raimi you got to realize there's going to be blood thrown at the screen there's going to be bile there's going to be sp things splattering and limbs going all over the place but it's never in like it's never in like a gratuitous malicious way just to gross you out like it's really He's trying to do a Three Stooges movie as if they did a, a, a horror movie, and that's the thing that, that I think really sets them apart. They're so childlike. Yeah, I mean, there is some, you know, some exceptions in the original Evil Dead, but there is such a weird charm that the meanness of the movie kind of gets glossed over and is easy to, you know, easy to ignore, because it's amazing what he could do with absolutely no budget, and even more amazing when they actually do give him money. 
Yeah, okay, let's I'll give people a quick little overview here cuz I I'm I'm aware that most people are not big Raimi heads like you and I are, Matt, but and it should, they should be. You should be listeners. You <laughs> should be a Raimi fan. Just saying. Okay, so Sam Raimi came out of film school, came out of Michigan, and he made this ultra ultra low budget horror movie called The Evil Dead in like 1982 somewhere in there. Actually, that was about over the course of about three years, I think, was how that one, how long that one took, because they were filming on weekends and in people's basements and garages. Yeah, and it wasn't like a huge hit, but it was amazing because he, like Matt said, he made this movie on like a budget of, I think it was like a, a buck fifty, a buck fifty. Yeah, I would say something along the lines of that and a couple of you know containers of Pez. <laughs> yeah. So he made this movie, and again. It's not my favorite horror movie of all time. It's very rough around the edges, but man, did he make something out of nothing because it's just him and his buddies in a cabin and he's inventing like how to make a movie and he's doing these weird shots where like the camera's spinning and he's like literally throwing the camera at the actors, like all sorts of fun <laughs> stuff like that. My favorite one was him hanging from his behind his knees on the rafters and doing a reverse sit up with a camera just to get this weird sweeping action at one point. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the Evil Dead, and again, it's again, it's not my favorite movie. It's a little too serious and a little too. It, it's lacking some of the whimsy that Sam Raimi would later be known for. In fact, I've shown a lot of horror movies to my daughter. I've talked about this before. She doesn't like the Evil Dead at all, and I I can kind of understand that. It's a little it's a little harsh, I think, for a Sam Raimi movie. A little bit. I mean, it's not indicative of what he would do later on, but. I'll be actually I'll be honest. It's one I always listen to with the Bruce Campbell commentary, so it's one of the funniest damn movies I've ever seen that way. <laughs> I mean, him talking mostly for about an hour and a half about Sam Raimi torturing him and their friends and it but you know, it's not, you know, talking in this haunted way. It's almost in this nostalgic, oh, those were the days sort of <laughs> voice that tells you at least it was horrible filming the movie, but a lot of fun too. Yeah, a lot of fun afterwards, and again, all these guys tell these legendary stories about Sam and like what a uh, what a weird guy he is, and just the weird things he does making movies. And then a couple years later, he did The Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, which is one of the most beloved horror movies ever made. And that's, I mean, if you haven't seen that one, just go out and see that. There's nothing like that movie. It's like a horror comedy, almost like slapstick, gore-fest ballet almost. It's the weirdest movie. Yeah, uh, I've, I've never been as much of a fan of that one as everyone else, but it did at least cement both the legends of Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi, so I have a hard time arguing with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love the rawness, uh, the raw simplicity of the first one, I would say, and the sequels, they get more of the praise, but yeah, what can I say? I, I, there's something about the cheapness of the first one that just warms my gruesome little heart. <laughs> And then a couple years later, he did the third one, and this is one that most people would know because it's a little more mainstream. He's trying to get away from horror movies. He did Army of Darkness, which is really just Evil Dead 3 set in medieval times. But I, I know you're a huge fan. I'm not as big a fan of Army of Darkness as you are, Matt, but it's one of those that like everybody loves. Uh, actually, no, we've uh, both agreed on the point. We both find Army of Darkness fairly overrated. Ah. No, I, I actually find the movies 1, 2, 3 in order would be my ranking of them. Uh, I, I find parts of Army of Darkness charming, but it gets more of the praise that should have been put to the earlier ones. It's, it's my it's my sequel theory that oftentimes the review you'll see of a sequel is giving the praise that should have gone to the movie right before then. Actually, I totally agree with you. Yeah, two is my personal favorite, but I, I agree that three got all the press that he should have got for one and two. 
Exactly. It's just like, you know, how people get Oscars for, you know, a movie or two after they should have gotten one. Okay, so so this is the legend of Sam Raimi. He made this Evil Dead series, which is the craziest, most memorable horror series I can think of from that era. And then he made he went mainstream and he started making like real movies. He got hired for dramas and action movies. And again, we did The Quick and the Dead. He did one called Dark Man. He did a an excellent crime drama in the uh, late 90s called A Simple Plan. He did a baseball movie. Then he did the Spider-Man movies. Like, he went mainstream, and all of a sudden you kind of forgot about this past, the Sam Raimi past. And that, in, in my opinion, is why this movie is so special, uh, Drag Me to Hell. Because, again, for 20 years, all these horror movie fans loved this guy, loved his earlier work, and he just didn't do that anymore because he was like a grown-up now. He made real movies. And then in 2009... All of a sudden, he pulls this out of his butt. He's like, I'm going to do another horror movie. And everyone's like, yay! Yeah, because this is my theory on this one. I've never heard it confirmed, but I have heard he had such a hard time filming Spider-Man 3 that I think this was just his rejection of all the studio BS that he was put through. That uh, that Drag Me to Hell is what came out because of Spider-Man. So even if Spider-Man 3 is widely considered a terrible movie, we have it to thank for this one, I think. <laughs> That's actually good. I have heard that as well. Yeah, he was, again, he was the golden child in Hollywood for a while, and he just kind of got fed up with it, and he's like, I'm going back to my roots, and I'm going to show that I can just make a still pull something out of nothing. And again, that's where we get this movie, Drag Me to Hell, which I would say is like the Sam Raimi master's thesis, where he he uses everything he's learned in all his earlier horror movies, and he throws them all up on the screen with all his better filmmaking, and this is why we have a uh, horror movie that people like Matt and I just absolutely revere. And that very few people seem to have heard of, which is such a shame. But thankfully, we have staff picks. <laughs> yes. Again, this is one of the first movies I picked for staff picks. I wanted to wait a little because, again, this is not a movie that I think everyone will love. Although, it's kind of weird to say that because I was just reading a great sentence. What was I reading? It was a, in the Washington Post of this, review, of this movie. They said, Drag Me to Hell is the rare horror movie that can be survived by people who normally can't take horror movies. I say it depends on what version you're watching. If you're watching the unrated one, like we do, <laughs> it's a little more difficult to sit through, mostly with all the goo. Lots of goo. Lots of creative goo. It's some, had some of the most creative goo I've seen in a movie. But yes, yes, it's an easy one to introduce uh, people who are a little more leery of horror to, because it's it's got everything. It's got a good story, amazing performances. It's scary as hell. And uh, it's just a top-notch filmmaking from one of the most brilliant and insane directors of all time. <laughs> In fact, that leads right into another sentence I read about this movie where someone said, I think this is Richard Roper said, this is junk filmmaking at its finest. Oh, I like that. But it, it still has a little more to it than that, but I still like that. <laughs> and I will say off the top of my head, this is a movie, again, I show my daughter all these horror movies, and this is one she doesn't especially like. And I will tell you why. She says it's too loud and too jump scary for her. And I know she's going to listen to this episode, so I'm just letting her know there's a reason people like Matt and I love this movie, and it's kind of like the history of horror movies. It's this, it's this, this guy coming back to his roots and doing something that he was known for 20 years ago. So I'm really hoping that my daughter, Vanessa, and other people who maybe have seen this movie and didn't love it the first time, I'm hoping they give it a chance and they let it grow on them over the years because what's really interesting about this movie in particular is that the critics, like across the board, it's like 95% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and that's critics of a horror movie? Like, that never happens. 
Yeah, if, unless your name is Get Out, I don't think I've ever seen that happen in the last 10 years. Yeah, and, and something else I just read the other day is that this movie was released the same week as the Disney movie Up, the Pixar movie Up. And it's funny because they basically deal with the exact same plot and old person losing their home and being forced to deal with the circumstances of being their house being repossessed. So <laughs> you could be either an up person or a drag me to hell person, depending on how you would handle this particular scenario in your life. I have not heard that. I love it so much. And now I want to see someone re-edit the trailers to fit that. So somebody re-edit the trailers in a hurry. I swear, I've watched it like a million times. All right. Um... Well, I want to get into this movie, but I got to tell my Sam Raimi story because this is one I don't think I told on this the Quick and the Dead podcast. So I'm gonna do a quick little aside here just to to explain why I have always been fascinated by the Sam Raimi guy. Um, I will say, when I was a kid, my parents, I've said before, would not let us watch R-rated movies. They would, uh, I mean, they were strictly forbidden, nothing R ever, which meant most horror movies were off limits. But as a young, fledgling horror movie fan, I was fascinated by horror movies. I always wanted to see them. I would go in the video store. i just look at the boxes, read the back, try to imagine what the movie was like. I was so enthralled by this idea of these R-rated horror movies. And I will say, my introduction to horror movies is Sam Raimi. Okay. And what happened is, yeah, what happened is my, my we'd go to drive-ins all the time up in Seattle in the 80s. And you drive, you know, people who go to drive, I don't know if young people have been to drive-ins, but there's usually four or five screens in like a big circle. And you park and you watch a movie. And instantly, if there was ever an R-rated movie, my brother and I would work out a scheme to, we'd go and sleep on top of the car. We'd get sleeping bags and you could lay on top of the car and watch the movie. And if there was an R-rated movie behind us, we'd just turn around and watch that movie instead. Nice. <laughs> With the side effect being you get no audio. So you're just watching the visuals of the horror movie. And so in 1983 or 84, somewhere in there, my parents took me to Splash, the Tom Hanks movie. And I didn't care about fucking Splash. I don't care. There, behind us, there's a horror movie. So I'm lying on top of our car watching this movie from like 400 feet away. And I just remember watching at the end. It's these people in a cabin and they're all being attacked by demons and then people are melting. And again, I have no audio. I have no idea what the hell is going on in this movie. So I just, and I, I just remember, I'm 10 years old, and I see this motorcycle at the end of the movie riding down a hill and running over this guy as he screams, and that's the end of the movie. And for years, I could not figure out what this movie was. I'm like, what is a movie where a motorcycle runs over a guy? I could not figure it out. And it wasn't until many years later I figured out that was the Evil Dead, and that's the last shot of the Deadites running over Ash at the end, which Sam Raimi literally did by going on a motorcycle and riding over Bruce Campbell. So that is my introduction to horror movies, and I owe it all to Sam Raimi. Oh, I love that story. That's a good one. <laughs> Okay, are you ready to dive into Drag Me to Hell here? I, I'm ready to go to hell with you if you are, Mario. Okay, let's go summon the Lamia together, Matt. <laughs> okay, so the story of the movie is thus. It's the story, uh, it opens up in Pasadena in 1969 at this big mansion. Apparently, Matt, you live in Pasadena. This is like the, the gypsy section of Pasadena. Oh, yeah, they got a whole gypsy district. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I have actually seen that. I actually have passed by that house before. I'm pretty sure it's very distinct. Because I mean, pretty much everything in Hollywood is filmed in the Pasadena area these days. Yeah, for people who don't aren't from this area, Pasadena is like the only area of California that doesn't look like California. They have normal trees and stuff. So, yeah, like any movie that you know is set in Pasadena at some point. Exactly. 
Yeah, so you have this mansion, and there's basically an exorcism going on at the start of the movie where there's this family of, like, Mexican immigrants, and they're rushing to this door where, like, a famous medium lives inside, and they're saying, help, help, you need to help our son. Our son is, like, hearing all these voices, like, something's coming after him, and the boy's, like, crying and trembling, and you're trying to figure out what happened. And, of course, there's these eerie, shadowy hands that are coming ever closer to the boy and his vision, and it's it's legitimately creepy. There is just a very there's a good sense of urgency throughout this whole scene that you don't know what's going on, but you know it's bad right away. Yeah, and they basically and the, the medium says, Why? Who's coming after your son? And they're like, Well, he stole this silver necklace from a gypsy's cart and uh she put a curse on the necklace and the medium's like, Oh my god and so run we have to run this boy inside because something bad is about to happen to him. Again, these uh famous horror movie trope of these gypsy curses. Yeah, because if, if, if horror has taught us anything, it's you cannot avoid a gypsy curse unless you live in a Stephen King novel and not a particularly good one. That is the only way to get out of a gypsy curse is to be in a bad Stephen King novel. To those who don't know the whole works of Stephen King, I am referring to Thinner, which has one of my favorite plot twists, because apparently if you have mob connections, you can get rid of a gypsy curse. You killed my daughter, so I curse you, Thinner. <laughs> It's such a bad movie, but it's a book and a bad book, but it holds a, a, a place in my heart that's very strange to describe. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the, the, the medium rushes this little boy inside and she's going to perform an exorcism because this gypsy has cursed him. And before she can do anything, all of a sudden the boy is like flung down to the ground and these hands reach up from underneath the earth. And it's this incredibly like scary and terrifying scene where demons literally drag this boy's soul down into the depths of hell. And it's like, it's quite an opening to a movie, I would say. Yeah, I mean, you start a movie by killing a kid, and not just by killing a kid, but by dragging him body and soul down into hell. I, where do you have to go from there in a movie? <laughs> yeah. So Sam Raimi, right from the start, we, we realize, okay, he's kind of going back to his roots here. This movie's not going to pull any punches. And what I love is just the audacity of Sam Raimi, the way he does stuff in movies. And, like, we had this killer opening with all these demons and hellfire and this kid being dragged down into the netherworld. And then it just cuts to black. And then the, the name of the movie pops up in, like, 800 size font, Drag Me to Hell. You cannot tell Sam Raimi what not to do. You tell him not to do something, he will do it, and it will be awesome. Yeah, so you get this awesome opening credit sequence. And again, this, this movie starts about with as good a bang as I've seen in any recent horror movie. And we go right into this opening credit sequence, and we see all these things about gypsies and curses. And it even spells out at the start of the movie that you have three days once you get the curse. Three days before the demons will come and take your soul down into the hoary netherworld. Mm-hmm. The Lamia. So, again, after just ten minutes of crazy opening to this movie, we start the, the story proper where we meet this little, this uh, young woman, uh, Christine. She's a bank teller, kind of uh, young and meek, played by, what's her name, Allison Lohman? Allison Lohman. And she she's, you can tell from the start, she is an utterly sweet person, a nice person. You know, she's practicing her diction. She's trying to get rid of her past. She's, you know clearly got a lot of issues, but is a really nice, nice person. And if you're a really nice person in a Sam Raimi movie, he's going to find a way for you not to be nice. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I was actually reading a review of this movie. I, I read so many reviews leading up to this podcast, and someone said their favorite thing about this movie is, you know, for years, Sam Raimi just tortured Bruce Campbell and just did horrible, horrible things to him in movies and threw goo in his face and chopped him up. And they're like, my favorite thing about Drag Me to Hell is watching Sam Raimi get a new toy, Alison Lohman, and all the fun things he gets to do to her. God, she must have been a trooper, I swear, because the amount of stuff he does to her, the amount of uh, how often she's buried, has things thrown into her mouth, thrust into her mouth, coming out of her mouth. It's just, it, it's, it is a grotesque movie to such a, a character who starts off as so incredibly sweet and relatable, and you just feel for her. You want to hug her so much, and then he starts thrusting things into her. And Okay, that sounded worse than I meant it to. <laughs> Let's keep that in. Uh, <laughs> well, wait a minute. You said, uh, I was hoping you didn't use that word grotesque, because, again, a lot of people that listen to these episodes won't watch horror movies, and I think if they hear the word grotesque, they're going to be a little uh, hesitant about this movie. So why don't you clarify that a little bit? Instead of grotesque, I'll say puppies. How's that sound? <laughs> uh, yes, this movie is very puppies. There's lots of puppies things coming in and out of her mouth. There's lots of puppies all over the floor. There's no um, puppies coming in and out of her mouth is not any better. <laughs> oh wow, this this got interesting in a hurry. Uh, no, it's. Sam Raimi is known. You, uh, if you've watched any of the Evil Dead movies, or even if you haven't, he is. Um, not afraid to have various bodily fluids and various consistencies flying across the screen and all over people. Uh, he returns to his roots in this movie by putting Alison Lohman through the ringer of vomit and maggots and blood and gore. And the thing is, it's not done in a mean way, as Mario was saying. It's more almost you're watching a live action Looney Tunes cartoon that just so happens to have an R rating to it. Yeah. I will say I'm going to spoil this a little, but one of my favorite things about this movie is there's a scene where two characters are having a confrontation in a basement later in the movie. And they're like, you know, fighting and goo is spewing all over the place. And one of them looks up and they happen to have an anvil hanging from a, ra <laughs> a rope in their basement for some reason. And they cut it and the anvil literally drops on someone's head and their head explodes. Like, <laughs> who came up with that? Who has an anvil hanging in their basement? Because you can't tell Sam Raimi not to have an anvil in his movie, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> but again, just to clarify what Matt said, this movie, we're talking about all this goo and gore and spew, but this movie is rated PG-13, and that's the astounding thing that Sam Raimi can get away with stuff, because, like, how one director would take, like, a bucket of blood and throw it on somebody and make it look all realistic... Sam Raimi will say, well, one bucket of blood is good, but what if I, what if I take ten, and what if the blood is green? <laughs> so, like, that's what Sam Raimi is. It's really, whatever a horror movie would do, he's going to do it ten times more over the top, but in a comical, Looney Tune way where you just can't possibly take it seriously. So that's what I really want to get across to people, that, that, yeah, this movie has a lot of goo and, and grotesque, weird special effects, but it's done in such a fun, non-sadistic, malicious way that I think you really just have to just kind of smile. Uh, very puppies special effects. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the worst thing I could say using puppies. Now you've made it a challenge, Matt. <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, we've met Christine. She's going to the bank. And again, she is a nice person, a sweet person, not a person who should be working at a bank, even if she is good at, a, at working at a bank. She wants to get a promotion at her job because a promotion is available. Her boss, who is, of course, David Paymer in the most boss actor sort of way 
says it's between you and this guy Stu, this new guy Stu who is a dick. Who I have to note in my notes here, I always wrote Punchable somewhere near <laughs> Stu. Punchable is underlined in my four pages of notes about nine or ten times because Stu is just that punchable. But he he is a better bank employee than Christine. And she's worried that he is going to get that promotion over her, even though she's worked so hard for it. Yeah, and so we meet Stu, and Stu is just kind of an a-hole, like Matt said. Just this absolutely weaselly little scummy, kissing up to the boss, just got the weeniest little voice. You just hate this guy instantly. And then we meet the other male uh, lead in this movie. Uh, This is uh, Christine's boyfriend, played by Justin Long, with the great name of Clay Dalton. Oh, God, it's the waspiest name for one of the... Uh, most relatable actors I've ever seen. I mean, Justin Long from Galaxy Quest, you just brought that up the other day. Uh, that was He is just so charming and nice. He has arguably got to be one of the best movie boyfriends in history in this movie. Yeah, and the thing about why he's important to the storyline is he. We, it's established early on that he is a coin collector. Oh, yes. He's like a psychology professor and a coin collector, and she brings him coins from the bank. And again, this is... All Sam Raimi movies are like little intricate little puzzles. All of this will fit together later. So just remember there's a coin collector and we have a Weasley co-worker. And here we go. It's time to meet our favorite character in this movie, Mrs. Ganoush. Mrs. Ganoush. She is a very delightful little... Uh, why am I doing the voice? That's incredibly racist. You might want to cut that out. She's a, <laughs> a very delightful... Very kindly looking old gypsy woman who is also happens to be one of the most puppies looking people you have (laughs) ever seen and you feel bad about thinking that she looks puppies because you know she seems so nice but she has this one eye that's all funky she's constantly coughing up this horrible slimy sounding stuff that we can't see but is otherwise the most grandmotherly woman you've ever seen at first Okay, and the lady who plays uh, uh, Mrs. Ganoush, her name is Lorna Raver, Lorna Raver. Did you read the story about how she got this part, Matt? It's one of my favorite casting stories ever. I think I've heard it before, but I don't. I forget. So tell me, this is going to be good. Okay. So again, everything we talked about earlier with uh, Allison Lohman getting horrible things done to her in this movie, Lorna Raver gets it just as bad. Like she will be crushed in this movie. Her head will be smashed. Things will go in and out of her face. Her eye will be stapled shut. Horrible, horrible things. And what's funny is when she was cast for this movie, she didn't realize it was a horror movie. <laughs> She's like this kindly old character actress who just known for playing like very realistic older women. And so she was given the script for this movie and she just saw the scene where she comes into the bank here and asks for a loan. And that's the only part of the movie she knew. So she was cast because she's such a realistic old kindly woman. And then she was given the rest of the script and she's like, oh, my. I have to. I I applaud her though, because she throws herself into this almost as much as, if not more, than Alison Lohman. I mean, these two are just two of the finest performances you're going to see in a modern horror movie. Yeah, I mean, you believe every minute of their little conflict here. As ridiculous as this story is, as over the top it is, as it is, it's driven home by the fact you have these two very good actresses leading it, who are giving very credible performances. So again, that's the if you can ground the movie in that reality, then Raimi can do whatever the hell he wants, and he will do whatever the hell he wants. As we'll we'll get to the goat scene later on. Oh yeah, all the puppy stuff to come. <laughs> 
All right, Mrs. Ganoush has come into the bank because her she's been given notices from the bank that they're coming to repossess her house because she's not been paying her mortgages. She can't make her payments, so she's coming in here to uh, basically plead for mercy. And, of course, nice little Christine is her loan officer. And, of course, Mrs. Ganoush just wanders in. Again, she's just a sickly, old-looking gypsy woman with a bad eye and bad teeth, and she's just coughing, and she's like, Will you help me, please? Like, this is my home. I need I need this home. You can't take it away from me. And so Christine's like, Well, let me talk to my manager. And she's doing everything she can to help this nice woman. And she goes into her uh, boss's office, and the boss says, Well, you know, we've extended her two times already it's really doesn't look good if we keep letting people not get away with their payments oh and by the way you're in the line for this vp job at the bank so if you can kind of cut some corners and make us some money he kind of hints perhaps it would be good to go out there and tell her we can't give her any more loans this part is so painful to me to, to watch because i am in life a very painfully nice person who never wants to break bad news to anyone but at the same time He's dangling something that you want, so that conflict is so awkward to watch. Yeah, it's it's really painful, and you. I mean, it's the, this movie's going to go in crazy directions, but it's still played as a straight drama here, as it should. And again, Mrs. Ganoush gets the bad news. Christine comes back and tells her, "Well, you know, I I can't. I tried my best. I can't do it. We're going to have to say we can't offer you any more money." And this old woman is just like surprise she's like but this is my home where will i live and, and christine's like well i'm sorry but there's not much i can do and we get this really uh painful scene to watch where mrs ganoush kind of gets down on her knees she's like you know i'm a proud woman and i've never begged for anything in my life but this is my home like please don't do this to me and she gets down on her knees and she starts groveling and christine is horrified because this gross old gypsy woman is touching her and she like pulls back and screams and yells for security and oh boy can I do the Mrs. Ganoush line to come? Yeah, please do, Matt. You have shamed me. Yeah, this is, that, that is not the thing that you do to a gypsy woman, is you do not embarrass her in public, make her fall on her face and shame her in front of everybody. Just a little FYI to our friends out there. One of my favorite things about this scene is a detail I didn't notice, but my wife did because she's great, that also points out just how great and layered Sam Raimi is at filmmaking. If you notice, if you look in the background during this entire scene, right behind Christine are banners for saving for retirement, reducing your debt, and homeownership. All themes that are in this conversation the two of them are having. <laughs> yes. So anyway, Mrs. Ganoush is dragged out by security because she's causing a scene. And she's just looking at Christine, like, angry. Like, you embarrassed me. You shamed me. And Christine's like, I'm sorry, but it's the best I could do. And, and then the bank manager comes over and says... You made the right call. That was a good decision. It, like, I guess you can make the tough decisions like stew. <laughs> yeah, it's all about punchable stew. Oh, and of course, the fact that Mrs. Ganoush has uh, Sam Raimi's car. Got to note the classics appearance. Yeah, okay, for people who don't know, Sam Raimi had a very famous car back in the 80s, and he put it in all of his movies. It's this big, long, tan, I don't even know, what kind of car is that? Do you know? Uh, I want to say it's an Oldsmobile, but it's a piece of shit, according to Bruce Campbell. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's something Sam Raimi does, is he puts his car in every movie. It's in every Evil Dead movie. They even use it as like a, at some point it's an Army of Darkness, I forget where it shows up. And I think in Qu The Quick and the Dead, he, he uses the chassis for a wagon at one point. <laughs> yeah, he, he finds a way to get it in there, even when it makes absolutely no sense, because it's just 
it is an ugly, ugly car, but you will never forget it on seeing it. Um, my fav- one of my favorite appearances is a quick one during a car chase in Darkman. Um, he, a dark man almost flies into the side of the car. And I think inside they had the Coen brothers hiding because they're friends of Sam Raimi. <laughs> and then, then Spider-Man, it's in all the Spider-Man movies too. So yeah, so it's this big Sam Raimi trademark, the car. And of course we uh, see that Mrs. Ganesh is driving Sam Raimi's car. So bad things are going to happen to Christine as we, we head down to the parking garage scene. Oh my God. This is, if you want to talk Sam Raimi, this is the most Sam Raimi scene in a Sam Raimi movie that's already the most Sam Raimi movie. Uh, this scene of complete, complete insanity. Christine's going down to the parking garage at night after this, and she's feeling a little shaken, but, you know, also feeling a little powerful. And I, I have to note one of my favorite things is the why is she carrying this giant box full of office supplies when she's not been fired or anything? She is carrying this giant box of office supplies into her car because it'll be really funny when it gets involved in the coming fight scene. Um, but anyway, she's going down to the parking garage to her car, and she sees the classic parked across the way. And this is naturally a bit worrying because of how intense things got with Mrs. Ganoush. So she you know, quickly gets into her car... Um, a weird wind comes up, but she's in the car. She relaxes. Spoiler alert. She shouldn't have relaxed. Yeah, so Christine just turns around. She's kind of looking around her, and she just kind of catches out of the corner of her eye that someone's sitting in the back seat. And lo and behold, it's crazy old Mrs. Ganush in her back seat. And now she's not so kindly and frail anymore. Now she's angry. And superhumanly strong and fast, too. <laughs> I, I mean, you, this, you know, this little old lady beforehand, and now she's, you know, stronger and faster than Spider-Man. <laughs> she became an MMA fighter at some point in the last 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, constantly charging Christine, attacking her. I mean, we're just getting into it at this point. I mean, there's, you know, biting and, Christ- and hair pulling and earring pulling on Christine, and Christine's freaking the hell out. And they're, you know, driving the car around, smashing the car around. At one point, she busts out a stapler from her strange box of office supplies, <laughs> opens it up, and just starts wailing on this old lady's face. And what kind of movie does that to an old lady? Yeah, if you ever wanted to see an old woman get her eyelids stapled shut, Drag Me to Hell is your masterpiece right there. Oh, but then let us not forget the most wonderfully grotesque part where Christine slings her around and this old lady's teeth come out while the uh, Mrs. Ganoush is going for to bite Christine. So instead of biting her, winds up basically deep-throating Christine's chin. <laughs> what is one of the most horrifyingly weird images that's <laughs> otherwise not very violent, but it's just, ew. Yeah, it's a weird scene, although you kind of skipped over the part where... where... Uh, the the late old lady has Christine in a chokehold. Again, these two women are just fighting in this car, yeah. and Christine ri- drives full speed as hard as she can into a car to get Mrs. Ganoush off her. Mrs. Ganoush goes flying face first into the dashboard, and like her face explodes. <laughs> it's just again, it sounds grosser than it is. It's just because it's Sam Raimi. It's so cartoony. Like her teeth go flying out, her nose explodes. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, okay, any Simpsons fans out there, this is an itchy and scratchy cartoon brought to life, but somehow completely bloodless. <laughs> yeah, so, so again, these two women are just fighting and fighting, and again, Christine manages to kick this old MMA gypsy fighter out of her car, and Christine's, like, laughing at her. She's like, I beat you, you old bitch! Mrs. Ganoush goes all Night of the Living Dead zombie on it by grabbing a rock and just smashing the window open. I mean, she just 
she just looks like this monster from hell at this point in the body of this otherwise kindly old lady, but her, I don't know what they did with her makeup, but it's just subtle enough that instead of kindly, she is just a monster, and she smashes the window, and she pulls Christine out, but not all of Christine. No, she just pulls a button from Christine's uh, jacket. Yeah, and this is where shit's going to start getting real here, where Mrs. Ganoush has been fighting Christine and pulling her and grabbing. In one of the great running jokes of the movie, she grabs locks of her hair. That will happen repeatedly in this movie. The gypsy likes pulling her hair out. But uh, she pulls a button off of Christine's coat, and she kind of looks at it, and she holds it up, and she says a little verse. Did you write down her actual curse she gives here? I couldn't actually hear the incantation, but I do. Rem- I did write down the words that came after because they are so frightening. Soon you will be the one who comes begging to me. Oh, great! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, she holds up. She does a little curse, and she says a name. She says Lamia. Lamia. And that is the name that they're that she's summoning. It's basically she's putting a curse on Christine. She's summoning this dark demon called the Lamia, which we learn later is the absolute most horrible, worst demon in gypsy mythology. This is the one that nobody once called on them because what it does is it will torment you for three days, and then after three days of just making your life a living hell, it will reach up, come up from the from the hoary netherworld. It will take your soul and it will pull you down into the eternity of suffering and pain. And it's, you know, disproportionate retribution, but it's effective. You know, gypsy magic there. And I got to say, it's more efficient than Japanese ghost curses. <laughs> yeah, these, this is a tough gypsy curse. And again, this is the rest. This is the next hour, 20 minutes of this movie is Christine slowly learning about the fate that has become to her and just the tension swirling and swirling and swirling as she gets closer to her dragging down to hell date. Yep. You know, that's a very important date in any young woman's life, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. The first time. It's, it's always special. All right, so after that, uh, she is, you know, left alone by Mrs. Ganoush, who, again, who cursed her button and gave it back to her. And Christine is naturally shaken because, as far as she knows, she was attacked by a crazy superhuman old lady in a parking garage. And, you know, rightfully so, because old ladies aren't generally supposed to move like that. I mean, my experiences with elderly women are admittedly rather limited, Mario. I should hope so. But uh, yeah, most of the people around the home don't seem to be quite as strong or fast as Mrs. Ganoush, so it's a clearly very traumatic experience. Yeah, I've been attacked by like five, six elderly women before, and they are—they do put up a good fight, but I can usually take them in the end. So I would say from my history, this movie is fairly accurate. Okay, good to know. I mean, just, you know, always give our audience warnings. <laughs> yes. Okay, so... Christine is uh, visibly shaken by this encounter with crazy Mrs. Ganesh, and she doesn't realize she's been cursed. But all of a sudden, she's walking around outside, and she sees things and starts hearing things, like the wind is coming after her and, like, just strange sounds, and, and she can't really explain what's going wrong, what's going on. And as she and her boyfriend are walking down the street, they happen to see a palm reader. And just on the spur of the moment, she's like, um, something tells me I might want to get my fortune told. So this is where we meet one of the other characters in the movie here. Yeah, this is where we get to meet Ram Joss, who is this wonderfully intelligent-feeling uh, character. But I'm going to get on my subject of exorcists in a bit, because um, what the image we get of exorcists in movies versus the reality of exorcists in movies are two very different things. 
Yeah, would you say that exorcists in movies tend to be successful or not successful? Okay, I'm going to get on this point now then. <laughs> exorcists in movies are terrible at their job because either they die or they don't get the job done. You know, let's look at The Exorcist. Father Marin dies before he gets the job done, doesn't even complete the job. We have Poltergeist, which this one breaks my heart because Zelda Rubenstein is such an amazing actress. But the moment she says, this house is clean, two minutes later we find out the house is not clean. Tangina lied. <laughs> and if, if we can't trust Tangina, how can we trust any exorcists in a movie? And we get an exorcism scene later in this movie. Take a wild guess how it goes. <laughs> All right, so we'll spoil, yeah, we're not going to spoil it too much, but yeah, exorcists tend not to be all that successful. If you see an exorcist with like a, on a LinkedIn page or something, just run far away because they're probably going to fuck up your life. Exactly. I mean, or at least they'll claim they fixed it, walk away, and then you'll be eviscerated by a demon for eternity from then on. Yeah, those guys are dicks. Yes, demons are dicks. <laughs> I was just saying exorcist too, but if you want to be, if we're speaking in the broad sense here. Oh, pretty much everybody related to the exorcism profession. Let's call it that. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, I mean, you speak about them as if they're con artists, Matt. Now, you wouldn't be saying that. No! <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, so she goes in there to meet, uh, what's his name, Ram Joss, and he starts reading her palm, and he's like, well, you know, I have, I can see things, I see visions. And he's like reading her palm, and all of a sudden he looks up at her, and he's got this look of horror on her face. And this is one of the scariest scenes in the movie where... He's just staring at her, trying to figure out if this is really, if what he's reading on her soul is actually what's happening. And there's all these little things going on in the room, like there's the windows are shaking and the, the lamps are rattling. And it's like a very Sam Raimi scene. And he's like, yeah, that's enough. I don't think we'll finish this uh, reading. <laughs> it's like, clearly he's read the fact that she is doomed by the Lamia and she's going to be dead in three days. And he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think we need to pursue this. I'll give you your money back. Enjoy. And of course, though, as it's pointed out later, well, he, he said that but he still did wind up accepting her money ultimately <laughs> he did so anyway he does her palm reading and he basically says on the way out she's like what did you see and he's like well have you been uh messing around in a cemetery have you pissed off the dead have you been playing with a ouija board yeah and then he's like have you been consorting with the, someone who deals with the black arts yes yes i have <laughs> come to think of it i just happened to be cursed by a gypsy not more than 10 minutes ago yeah, I mean, I, that happens to me so many times a day, I can understand why someone would forget it happening once, but... <laughs> yeah. So anyway, she knows this gypsy did something bad to her, but she doesn't know the details yet, and she goes home, and this is the first of several scenes of her just basically being at home and Sam Raimi scaring the shit out of her. Can I, get, can I go on a, different, a little bit of a different tangent here, because it's one of my favorite things to talk about this movie, even if the two of us don't fully agree on it. Sure. One of the things we see her doing at home, she, the first thing she does is try to get a, her normal evening back. She's baking a cake, and one of the thing, first things we see while she's doing that is her looking at a picture of herself back on the farm as a pudgy little girl. Now, I've heard an interpretation of this movie that this movie is about the horrors of eating disorders, that the demon itself is basically a, an eating disorder brought to life. I know you don't agree with me on this one, Mario, but... I have a hard time ignoring that, that, uh, that being an issue with this movie when we have so much focused on vomiting, so much focused on her and having issues with food, uh, her hair falling out even, you know, with the gypsy grabbing her hair. 
Yeah, issues with her body. I mean, food itself actually becomes an enemy that she tries to stab to death at one point in the movie. It's just... It's an uncanny level of deepness for Sam Raimi if that was part of the intention. And if not, it's an amazing accident that works out very well, I think. Yeah, I'm just saying that you are the first person I've ever heard to turn a Sam Raimi splatter movie into a think piece. So I will give you an award for that. It's, I, you know, I can kind of see that maybe unintentionally, but just if you look at all the Sam Raimi movies, it's all about splattering and goo and vomiting and stuff, which, which is why this movie absolutely fits in with every other Sam Raimi horror movie. And that's why I can't, I can't imagine that that's intentional. And also because, as I said at the start of the movie, anybody who reads about Sam Raimi knows his hero is like the Three Stooges. That's all. He thinks that's like the, high, the highest of highbrow comedy ever. Those are his idols. So, like... That's his level of storytelling. I'm going to make a Three Stooges Looney Tune cartoon and just scare the crap out of you. So if Sam Raimi is throwing that kind of subtext in a movie, I would be shocked because he's the last person I think would do that. Yeah, but he is also considerably older than he has been. He has been around more. He has had more experiences with more people, more women. And it's a. I think it's just an, an interesting way to look at the movie at the very least, but also I, I do believe this is intentional, and I think it's pretty cool if that's the case. Hmm. But I digress. So you're saying this movie should be shown in, like, health class in high school? Actually, I think it should. <laughs> I mean, I, I think a lot of Sam Raimi movies should be shown in a lot of classes, but this one, I mean, my wife loves it, and she thinks it's it, it's a movie that can speak to a lot of people, so... And I have a hard time. I have a hard time disagreeing. All right. I mean, that's that's a valid interpretation. I don't personally see it, but I will. I respect your guys' opinions, and I will say again, like in high school, when they divide the boys into one room in health class and the gypsies into another room in health class, that this must be the movie that they would show the gypsies. So there you go. That's a very puppy's way to look at it, Mario. <laughs> All right. So yeah, just a a scene here. Uh, it's really hard to say much about it. It's about five minutes of just Christine being alone in her house and things rattling and there being weird noises and she sees shadows out of the corner of her eye. Just a very effective Sam Raimi ghost moment here where nothing obliquely, overtly bad happens to her, but it just, you get the sense something's coming. Oh, she gets punched by an invisible force. Sam Raimi loves that cartoony punch sound. I was going to say, that's what Sam Raimi movies do to you, that she's punched, and I consider that nothing major happening to her. <laughs> well, yeah, she didn't have anything come, you know, she didn't have anything puppies going into or out of her, so. <laughs> yeah, if nobody got any kind of uh, sploosh thrown into their face, it's a minor scene, it's a flesh wound. All right, so... Yeah, so Christine, of course, is assaulted by something in her house. Just, it's like, it'll get much worse. For here, it's just like, something came in and punched me. I don't know what it was. And the doctor's there, and he's like, well, you know, you were just attacked by an MMA fighter dressed up like a gypsy, so it's PTSD, probably. You're just having flashbacks. And she's like, okay, well, I feel better about that. And this is where her boyfriend says, you know, I know some bad things have been happening to you lately, and, you know, I got this uh, trip planned in two days. Why don't we go up to my family's cabin? It'll take your mind off all this nastiness and craziness, and it'll be a nice time for us to get away. And he's kind of hinting he's going to propose to her, I think. So that's the, that's where we're going to go with this movie. Just in two days, good things will happen. Just kind of let's get through this crazy period, and in two days we'll go on this nice little train trip together. And then, of course, we get them at night with some of the real intense Raimi occurring <laughs> where we see the two of them sleeping, and then a fly is just going around the room. And in one of my favorite touches, this fly that's completely CGI lands on the camera because that's exactly the sort of thing that Sam Raimi does. 
And then, of course, it flies around, crawls up her nose, into her mouth, out of her. And then for the rest of this movie, she's haunted by this sound of a fly flying around in her chest. <laughs> yeah. Although, let's not forget the second part of the scene. She Again, she's sleeping, she's distracted by this fly, and she wakes up, and then she lays back down, and she turns over to her boyfriend. And all of a sudden, in a nice little Sam Raimi moment, it's Mrs. Ganesh lying next to her, who attacks her again. Yeah, I've seen that one posted on lists of some of the greatest jump scares of all time, and i got to agree, it's a pretty damned effective one. Yeah, and how, how, dear Matt, does this scene end? It, it ends with Mrs. Ganoush straddling Christine and vomiting maggots and worms and dirt into her mouth. Yeah, and again, I just, for people who might be horrified by that, just know, like, it's so over the top, the amount of stuff that comes out of her mouth. It's such a cartoon moment. Like, I just remember laughing so hard when that happened. I'm like, God damn it, Sam Raimi, that's exactly what you do in your movies. Yeah, that's, that, that's I was going to say, I was going to use the word waterboarding, but that's not quite right. Would, would maggot boarding be a term? Yeah, yeah, in Sam Raimi movies, I believe maggot boarding and vomit boarding would both be appropriate. Oh, okay, cool. Good to know. Okay, but anyway, she wakes up from this, and it was all just a dream. Or was it? Dun-dun-dun. It was, but in this case, that's still not a good thing. Yeah, exactly. We just wanted to be dramatic. Okay, <laughs> so the next day, Christine goes to work. And again, we're on, I think, day two of Drag Me to Hell here. The first day, she's been tormented, and now she goes to work the next day. And uh, what's happened? She gets this massive nosebleed, and all of a sudden, her nose, like, it sprays all over everybody in the bank, and she runs out horrified. Oh, no, she, it's, it's coming out of her nose, it's coming out of her mouth. She tries to cover the blood coming out of her mouth, so it just sprays out of her nose like a fire hose all over her boss. <laughs> I mean, we're talking super soaker levels of blood. She should not be standing still afterward. Because, again, as you say, something that would be horrifying in any other movie, Sam Raimi just cranks it up to past 11 and up to 12, to a point where it goes around the bend from being um, puppies to being just amazingly funny again <laughs> i like the the manager he gets like an entire spray of blood in his face and he's like are you okay and she's like you just got blood boarded you motherfucker i'm not okay and uh of course at this point during this distraction we see punchable stew uh stealing some uh, major project that christine was working on this will come up later yeah okay so uh, let's get to the fun stuff here. So Christine is having some bad days here. She's just left her job covered in blood. She's got a fly crawling around inside her. She's being chased by some invisible demon she's not aware of yet. And so she decides, I'm going to go to Mrs. Ganesh's house, and I'm going to go apologize. Maybe we can set this straight, and maybe she can kind of, whatever she did to me, maybe she can take this off. So <laughs> she goes to Mrs. Ganesh's house, and to say uh, this does not go well is kind of understating it. A little bit, yeah, because instead of meeting Mrs. Ganoush at the door, she meets Mrs. Ganoush's granddaughter, who right away knows, A, who she is, and B, well, she says, you used to be a fat girl, didn't you? <laughs> Again, it still goes with my my theming here on this one, but fascinatingly enough, she is invited into the house after the granddaughter kind of laughs this off and finds, hey, there's a party going on, a lot of people having a lot of fun, what the heck's happening here? And she doesn't really figure out what happens until she literally trips onto Mrs. Ganoush's body because this is her funeral. <laughs> because Christine is straddling Mrs. Ganoush's corpse and then the table gives out from underneath her. Mrs. Ganoush's body is rolling on top of her and is vomiting, embalming fluid all over her. 
Yeah, so that's the, the premise of this movie. If you've done a bad thing to a gypsy, don't worry, because you're going to do about five other worse things to her later. And this is where Christine accidentally knocks her corpse out of its wake, out of the coffin. She ends up on top of it, causes a big scene, and this is where we learn, you know what, Mrs. Ganesh isn't going to be able to take this curse off you, because she's dead. So have fun with that one, Christine. It's one of my favorite great oh shit moments in movies, because... Everybody seems to have the basic understanding of how curses work, even if you have no reason to know how curses work, that, okay, the person who put it on me can take it off of me. Well, if that person's dead, that is about as screwed as you can possibly be in a movie. Yeah, that is the loophole right there, the gypsy loophole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although the granddaughter has a great line here, where Christine is horrified to learn that the one person who can take this curse off of her is dead, and the granddaughter comes and comes up next to her and says, Still going to make things all right? You deserve everything that's coming to you. Yep. So anyway, she goes back, uh, Christine at this point goes back to Ram Jass, and who explains the Lamia for the audience, yada yada. We all know kind of that at this point. And oh, of course, he gives her what might be a way out by saying, let's give a, you can give a blood offering of a small animal. That might help, which, of course, it brings us to the point where she reveals that not only is she a vegetarian, but she volunteers at an animal shelter. So, of course, at this point, Rom gives her one of the greatest books ever. I'm trying to get the – oh, yes, the, the, this handy-dandy guidebook, Animal Sacrifices in the Service of Deities. I had to write that title down because that is so amazing. I'm telling her, yeah, you'll be surprised what you do when the Lamia comes for you. Yeah, I love that he had that book just sitting around because this is literally the next day. So there's no way he eBayed that or got it off Amazon in a day. Yeah. So he had that book sitting around on his shelf somewhere. Yeah, this is a guy who is supposed to seem like a nice, good guy, and he just has this book hanging around. That I got a little, I'd be a little worried about Ram Jass at this point. <laughs> yeah, this might not be one of the good mediums. This might be one of the con artists. Oh, yeah, I don't think he's a con artist at this point. I think he's one of the scary ones. <laughs> oh, that's right. I guess if he would have that book. All right. So, yeah, to, to just uh, emphasize what you just said, Ram Dass basically spells out the Lamia. He's coming for you. He says, you have a cursed object, and he's coming to get it. Whoever owns that object will be killed in three days. And then he says, maybe you could distract him by killing a small animal. And Christina's horrified. No, no, I would not. And he's like, yeah, don't be too sure. <laughs> Because literally the next scene. <laughs> yeah, literally the next scene is we cut to him saying you're going to kill a small animal. She's like, no, I won't. Cut to her petting her little kitty at home. <laughs> oh, and what's even better, she has in the background of this scene one of those hang in there baby posters of the cat hanging on the clothesline. Yeah. And I have, I have heard some people turn on the movie at this point, but I will say I have the exact opposite reaction. With, we're going to have a woman kill a little baby kitty in the name of saving her soul. Yeah, and it gets... Because clearly, this is me thinking at the very least, if Raimi had any storytelling purpose um, beyond the stuff I've already thrown out, it's to basically give a big middle finger to the screenwriting book, Save the Cat. Yeah, why don't you yeah, go for that, go, uh, delve into that. Well, there's a famous screenwriting book called Save the Cat, which just had a basic, I haven't read it myself, but I've heard the reputation. It's supposed to have a lot of the standard format of storytelling for a screenplay, what's supposed to happen when, and what things you're not allowed to do in a movie if you don't want the audience to turn on you. And one of the things is Save the Cat. So you know, if you're in a movie where there's a kid or a dog or a cat, and there's a chance that they might die, a character has to save them. And at that point... Um, Raimi basically puts a big middle finger to that saying, I don't have to save a cat. Why should I save a cat? So 
After being tormented by the Lamia, beaten up even more savagely than the first time, we see Christine going over to her kitty with the biggest kitchen knife in the world. I mean, she's not even going to go about this in a, you know, delightful, you know, in a, in a humane sort of way. She's going at this little cutest cat in the world with a giant butcher's knife. <laughs> it's just going crazy on it, covered in blood. And then we cut to her later, burying it. Wait, we never, we never see her actually attacking the cat. That's probably only in the unrated one. Um, oh yeah. I watched, yeah, I watched the theatrical one. You never see her. She just see her holding the knife saying, here, kitty, kitty. Oh, that's actually pretty good too. But, uh, yeah, the unrated version that I've seen, um, yeah, she does actually go after the cat. You don't actually see the knife go into the cat. It's very Alfred Hitchcock psycho where you get the impression of what's happening and the blood spraying, but you don't actually see the stabbing of the cat. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've said it before, I forget, I think it was uh, one of the earlier horror movies, maybe Black Christmas, I, I forget, but I've always had a theory that for a horror movie to really prove that it has balls and tell the audience you don't know what's coming, they have to kill a dog. And I've said that before because it's such a cliche that the dog will always be in danger, it'll be rescued at the last minute and the audience is happy. But there's a couple movies where they don't do that, and I always point out Halloween and Jaws, they killed a dog in both of those. And that's really the filmmaker just telling you, you know what, don't get safe here because I'm going to do anything in this movie. And I was just going to say that Raimi trumps that. He goes one beyond that saying, you know, F the dog. I'm going to kill the tiniest, cutest little baby kitten just to prove to you that I can do anything in this movie and you're going to have to watch it. Okay, my anecdote time on that front, uh, just to back up your point on that one. Okay, this about 10 years ago, I was a writer for a horror movie website and they actually sent me to a press junket for a remake of The Hills Have Eyes. And there's a scene in the movie where an actor is basically has his life saved from this hill mutant by a dog, and then the act, the character leaves the dog behind and barricades it behind a door while it's fighting a mutant because he doesn't want to fight it. That actor was being interviewed in the room I was in, and all these people were asking him, why didn't you save the dog? <laughs> it was one of the funniest, weirdest things, like, oh yeah, of course the actor has a choice in that matter. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy how attached people get to dogs. And again, I have a dog. I think dogs are awesome. But in movies, I think that's always my delineation right there. If a movie really has balls or if it's going to pull its punches and just kind of be nice to people, if they take out that little pet. And again, the, the, in the theatrical version of this movie, it's not graphic at all what happens to this cat. It's just kind of implied. But yeah, the little kitty meets its maker real fast the minute that Christine gets attacked by the Lamia again and realizes like, I'm screwed. I better start blood sacrificing stuff. Yeah, and I'm going to say, I know it's a, po a movie about the point of desperation people are brought to, but am I, one of the questions I had in watching it this time is, is Christine really that nice? Because it's really easy for people to convince her to do bad things. I mean, she at the very least gives in to peer pressure very easily. Yeah, I've heard that argument that she's a horrible person and she deserves everything that happens to her. I never, I mean, I could see that argument. I don't, I don't watch the movie that way. I just see her in a horribly, horribly desperate plight that gets more and more stressful as it goes along. It's like this circling noose of tension as it goes down towards the end of the movie where she'll do anything. So I, I don't personally judge her for choices. I think she made one bad choice at the start and after that she's just desperate not to be dragged to hell. Exactly. No, and I agree with that too. I just have to point those things out there of, it's an interesting slippery slope that can be argued, but personally I want to agree that she is every bit as nice as we see for the sake of um, making it all the more a tragedy what happens to her. 
And I will say the scene that leads up to her killing her little baby cat is legitimately quite a scary scene where Raimi really starts ramping up the tension here of all these shadows circling Christine's room. And you can see these this goat devil shadow coming, coming up her stairs and slipping under her door. Like, it's just legitimately creepy. Anybody who thinks Raimi kind of sold out and forgot how to do horror, watch this sequence in the movie right here. This is legitimately just straight horror. Oh, yeah, because when the goat... You see the shadows of the goat legs under the door... And then the shadows of the goat legs actually be stretch into hands reaching out for her. And that's, ooh, that's creepy right there. Yeah, no, there's some, again, it's hard to, qualify, to quantify this. Is it a horror? Is it a comedy? I would say it works in both directions. But, like, the horror stuff is really good and the comedy stuff is really funny. So, again, you can see why Matt and I just are so drawn to a movie like this. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's one of those... I've seen very few movies that I'd say could balance the horror and the comedy rather well, because oftentimes you hear the term phrase horror comedy. It either leans too hard into the horror or too hard into the comedy. There's very few that I think ride the line perfectly as well as this one does. The only other one I can think of that comes to mind for me would be an American Werewolf in London. Yeah, I mean, Raimi really does respect the horror movie. That's the thing. As funny and as whimsical and as cartoony as this movie is, when he wants to like tighten the screws and make it horror, he really goes for it. So that's the thing that really kind of endears me to him, that he does not get wrapped up in this. I have to make it funny and pull my punches and make it, you know, palatable to everybody. And again, I point out this movie is still only PG-13, despite him doing every trick he knows in the book to scare the crap out of you. Yeah, and I think actually it works very well in that way because he creates this very disorienting sense by switching so readily between the core and the comedy that it puts you really into her position of not knowing what's going to happen from moment to moment. Yeah, and that's something I think I wrote just the other day. Someone was asking about this movie, and I said, why I like Sam Raimi so much is he he misdirects you. Like, you think you know where a scene's going to go, but you don't because he's going to throw you off at some point. And I, I think of the phrase I used is, he wields misdirection like a hammer. Like, it's just a blunt object he's going to beat you over the head with all his misdirection. And you really have no idea right until the end of this movie where it's going. It's crazy. Uh, I, let's go with an anvil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the anvil. Okay. Oh, let's, let's go to the dinner scene here. So I'm going to race through this cause we can get, so we can get to the end because this movie, this podcast is already well over an hour here. Yeah, I can see that. Sorry about that. She goes to a dinner party with uh, Clay, and they go to her, his parents' house, and uh, it's this big, big moment for her. She's scared to meet them. She's had all these horrible things happening to her, and uh, she's self-conscious because Clay's mom doesn't like her. She thinks she's this poor little fat farm girl. So it's just it's this awkward moment, but again, she thinks that she has defeated the Lamia because she sacrificed her cat. She's like, well, I appeased the Lamia. That will clearly be okay. So we go to the dinner, and the dinner does not go especially well. Because, yeah, the parents, again, as you say, they're not very pleasant people. They are the waspiest wasps to ever wasp without really blonde hair. Um, And then she starts hearing noises again, noises she thought she got rid of. And suddenly she's looking in this piece of cake. She just, just won over Clay's mom, who was a horrible person to her. And she looks at this piece of cake, and it starts crumbling outward. And then an eye comes out of the cake, this gross blinking eye of Mrs. Sylvia Ganush. And just, oh. And she, of course, screams at it and stabs it and goo comes out and, you know, it's food being her enemy in this case. 
again, just more and more of Christine slowly going insane as all these things are happening to her and threatening her and nobody else can hear them. And that's, again, why this movie really ramps up the tension as it goes along. She's going insane and she's screaming at things and nobody else knows what's going on. And so the parents are like, what's wrong with her? And even Clay at this point is like, I don't know. I, I she she was doing fine. I'm not sure she's like having a breakdown. And this is where we go back to Ram Das or Ram. What's his name? Ram Joss. Ram Joss. Yeah. Go back to Ram Joss, the uh, seer. And she comes in there and she's like, you're full of crap. I sacrificed my kitty. You said that would appease the, the Lamia. And he's like, he's a great line here. These are elusive forces. There are no guarantees. Yeah, because this is OK. Can I get on my one of my other tangents here of the thing about good and evil in movies is that. If the movies have taught us anything, it's that the forces of evil get shit done. You never see God stepping up in a horror movie outside of frailty to fight on the side of people. No, we always see the forces of evil are powerful. The forces of evil deliver, and this movie just backs that one up to a crazy extent. Well, I mean, it even goes as far as the bank because Stu gets stuff done and Christine doesn't. So evil will always win in the horror movie. That's really how it works. Yeah, no matter, I mean, you you can either, that's the, the sad truth of horror movies that probably extends somewhat into the real world that the easy path is evil because evil delivers. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if I'm starting a business selling Cutco knives, I'm hiring the devil and I'm not hiring God because the devil's going to sell those knives one way or another. And he's going to do great PR work, too. I mean, sure, your soul will be his for all eternity afterward, but man, while you're alive. <laughs> well, they always say in pro wrestling, the bad guy cuts the best promos, so I guess that would probably work here, too. There we go. Anyway, let's keep moving. Okay, so Ram Joss says, well, at this point, the Lamia is coming for you tomorrow. You're kind of screwed. The sacrifice didn't work. So there's really only one thing left to do. You have to speak directly to this dark spirit, and you have to plead with it not to take you. And she's like, well, how will I do that? And Ram Joss is like, you know what? I happen to know a person who can speak directly to the Lamia. Just off the top of my head, it just struck me that remember that woman from the start of the movie that tried to save the little Mexican boy? Well, she would love another crack at the Lamia because she had one before and she and it didn't work. So let's go to her. Oh, and by the way, it'll cost $10,000. You got to raise it by tomorrow. I take credit cards. But let's try that. Yeah. Uh, again, he's supposed to be one of the good guys. <laughs> He's making a lot of money in this movie. It's all I'm saying. Yeah, seriously. So, okay, oh, this is where we get to the truly heartbreaking part where she goes to her boss to ask for the promotion early so she can get the money to do this. And he basically says, I'm sorry, but that deal you were trying to broker, it went to another bank. Because uh, we know, because we saw from what we saw as an audience, we know Stu screwed her. Punchable Stu screwed poor, tormented Christine, and she has nothing she can do. We see her gathering everything she owns of any value to take to a pawn shop. It's this heartbreaking scene. So naturally, of course, this is when Ganoush attacks her again. <laughs> yeah, this is the anvil scene I talked about earlier, where she's in her basement gathering supplies to go sell to raise all this money to pay to the seance. And all of a sudden, Mrs. Ganoush attacks her, the, like the ghost attacks her in the basement again. And this is the one where she literally, Mrs. Ganoush literally punches her fist all the way through Christine's mouth into like a pole behind it. And Christine happens as happenstance would have it looks up and she has a little anvil hanging in her basement and this is the one at the point in the movie i just was laughing i'm like oh my god rammy rammy's going for the anvil on the head gag but yeah she cuts the rope the anvil drops mrs ganusha's head explodes her eyeballs go flying out and it's just a wonderful little cartoon violent scene that comes out of nowhere 
you know, any other director, I'd say they were probably padding for time at that point, but Raimi, nope, this one was just for fun, because more movies need more anvils, damn it. <laughs> but that is seriously one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen in a horror movie, where he literally pulls out the Acme Wiley E. Coyote anvil onto the head gag. <laughs> But we actually see the follow-through on what an anvil would actually do to a head. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nasty. But again, okay, so she raises all this money, and her boyfriend Clay helps pay. And so we're going to give all this money to this seer, this, uh, what's the lady? She's a medium. Her name is, like, Mrs. Sandina here? Yeah, Sean Sandina. Okay, and here we go. One of the signature scenes in this movie. I will let, Matt, you have a way with words. Why don't you walk people through this totally effed up scene here? Okay, it's, uh... A very specific point is made that only Christine can come in. Her boyfriend, Clay, has to stay outside, and that's going to come up as important later. Anyway, in the middle of this giant mansion that this medium somehow owns, probably from overcharging, you see this very beautifully lit rotunda, this nice round table. We have um, Christine and Ram Joss and Sean Sandina and her random assistant all sitting around a table, and then suddenly a goat is brought out on a rope and Christine is like, what? Why do we have a goat here? And basically that uh, Sean Sandina outlines the fact that she's going to bring the Lamia into her, put it into the goat, and then they're going to kill the goat. And Christine's like, I can't, we can't kill a goat. And incidentally, the goat is going to be killed with a freaking machete. <laughs> I like I like the assistant, like the, the Star Trek red shirt guy. We don't know his name. I'm sure nothing bad will happen to him during the seance. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so... Spoiler alert. Um, and anyway, the lights go dark. We uh, Sean Sandina enters a trance for bringing in this seance to where it ought to be. And of course, the first step is to open this portal to the other world and all these horrible, weird ghosts from, you know, the further come in. Yeah, I was going to say the movie goes full Evil Dead here. Like if you have any wonder, like I would just call this movie Evil Dead 4 at this point because when all these spirits, these are like all the unsettled souls and demons are entered into this world, they literally start using the exact same voices as the Deadites use in Evil Dead and they start dancing around. Like it goes full on Evil Dead for about 10 minutes here. Yep. Oh, but it gets better because we she does bring in the spirit of the Lamia. And she does successfully put it into the goat. And this is the point in the movie where we have a talking goat puppet. <laughs> a talking swearing goat puppet. Yeah, this goat puppet that's, I will do this to your soul, and I will pocket it into oblivion, and there is nothing you can do. And anyway, when we're going for the machete to cut this talking goat's head off. Wait a minute, wait, wait, you forgot the best goat line of them all. Oh, go for it. You tricked me, you black-hearted whore. <laughs> Anything is funnier if said in a goat voice. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna test that theory now. So go for the the, the throat slash here. Go for. They're gonna have to go kill the goat. Yeah, the guy tries to grab at the goat with a machete, but winds up missing, severs the chain, and it bites him in the hand. And if you've ever seen a Sam Raimi movie, there is nothing worse than a demon biting you in the hand. Because guess what that does? Suddenly, random assistant red shirt guy is a is the is the Lamia. He's a deadite. Yeah, he's a full-on deadite because he's just randomly hovering and starts dancing this jaunty little jig of a dance in midair. It's this fully surreal, bizarre, beautiful puppies scene. 
Okay, I gotta say, to when they have to summon the Lamia, there's a chant that they all say before they enter the the blackest of gypsy spirits into their world, or where they summon her. And the, the the phrase they use is, "I welcome the dead into my soul," which I will say, if you're at a party, don't chant that ever. That's a bad idea. Oh, one of my favorite uh, response, one of my favorite exchanges here. I took a note of too is right before the seance starts. Christine says, "I'm scared," to which I forget. I think it was Ram Joss responds. Yes. <laughs> yeah, again, there's just so many little evil dead moments here. Like at one point, uh, Mrs. Sandina gets the Lamy insider and she starts talking to Christine and threatening her. And she literally starts saying stuff that we've heard in every evil dead movie. She's like, we will feast upon your soul. Like, that's right out of evil dead, too. And vomits her dead cat onto the table. Yes, here comes the cat that was uh, sacrificed about 20 minutes ago. The Lamia spits out the cat, like the full-on corpse of her baby cat, and he's like, I don't want your cat, you dirty pork queen. And then, of course, Sean manages to, attempts to banish the demon, but of course, because she is an exorcist, winds up dying instead of getting the job done. Yeah, the exorcist dies, and it is unsuccessful, and the Lamia is not stopped. So, way to go. That's a one negative Yelp review for Mrs. Sandina. Yeah, but Ron, Ron explains to her, at the very least, there is one more chance. It is a horrible chance, but he takes her button, puts it in a white envelope, and seals it. This is going to be important. And says, you can gift this curse to someone else. Of course, the problem being, if you gift the curse to someone else, you're sending someone to hell. But that is basically what they've gone to at this point is that is the only option to save her. Yeah, I love her reaction to that. He's like, you know, you can always take the cursed button and give it to somebody. And she's like, well, you could have told me that before. <laughs> she's like, well, well, I didn't want, you know, because then someone else dies and then you're responsible. So it's kind of a double whammy. So that's the really the catch. So, you know, if only if only Christine had someone in her life that she didn't like, who perhaps was sabotaging her work, that maybe she could send him to hell instead. Hmm, that does seem pretty convenient if such a person were to exist. Wait a second. I know. How about Punchable Stew? Stew? You don't say. <laughs> okay, yeah, so that's, you can see where this movie's going, and that's one of the things that's great about this movie. You can see the storyline coming a mile away, and you think it's going to go in that direction, but it actually, Sam's going to zig when you think he's going to zag here. Because, yeah, Stu comes to meet her in a diner. She says he kn she knows what he did to her, and instead of being smug asshole about it, he is just this blubbering, crying mess. I'm, please don't tell my dad. <laughs> yeah. This is like a 30-year-old man we're talking about here. Yeah, she just, she can't do it. She wants to send Stu to hell, but she just, again, she's like, to back up your point earlier, she's not a bad person. She can't have that on her conscience, that this guy, no, much, no matter how much she hates him, she can't be responsible for his soul being ripped apart for eternity down in the nether regions. Uh, let's, let's point out one major thing, though, that was a, a something that also got, happened at this point. Uh, she was in the car with Clay, and uh, they got into a bit of a slight accident, stopping very quickly, and she drops the envelope with the button in it. Yeah, it gets, again, to go back to the start of the movie, her boyfriend Clay has a coin collection. She, and as these, their car goes into a little accident, this envelope with the button in it goes flinging down onto the ground. She goes to pick it up, and she doesn't realize she actually has one of his quarters in an envelope. She doesn't have the button. So when she's giving this to Stu here, she thinks she, or when she's planning to give it to Stu, she thinks she's giving the button away. She can't do it. And again, she's in the diner. She uh, At one point, she wants to give it to this old guy who has emphysema. She's like, well, he's dead. 
dad soon anyway, so it's like like it won't be that bad. But she can't do it because he has like a wife. So again, she cannot give this button away. And then she gets a bright idea, and she's like, you know. I don't have to give it to an alive person. I bet there's a loophole that I could give this button to a dead person, and then they would be the owner. Yeah, and she goes to Ram Joss. He confirms it, so she's driving to the cemetery. And this is when, of course, we get one of the other signature Raimi scenes of her fighting an enchanted kerchief. <laughs> yes. Where Mrs. Ganusha's kerchief has been kind of following her throughout the movie, flying on the breeze, and it flies at her while she's driving her car. Uh, naturally. She almost defeats it with the power of the almighty windshield wipers, but instead it gets sucked into her car, attacks her, and flies down her throat, at which point she jumps out of the car and is ripping it apart on the ground while it screams, and how did I just say this sentence? Because the power of Sam Raimi, that's why. <laughs> that's right. You know, if he builds up a baseline, he can do whatever he wants towards the end. And here we are where she's literally fighting a handkerchief, and it's trying to go down her throat and kill her. She pulls it out, and she, like, steps on it, and it screams, which I love, the screaming handkerchief. Because why not at this point in the movie? <laughs> so then we get to a point where that every movie should have a grave-digging scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, full on. Again, this is the Sam raimi scene of Sam Raimi scenes right here. She goes, she's going to, uh, she only has one thing left. Like, the, the Lamia is coming for her soul tonight. She must give this button away. And she's like, I'll go give it to that dirty old crazy bitch, Mrs. Ganush, and I'll go dig up her corpse, and I will give her this button. And I'm like, oh, well, now we're in a fun direction on this movie now where it's a grave robbing scene. Yeah, cause you don't, you don't get enough of those in movies these days. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, Ram Joss is like, are you going to give it to Mrs. Ganoush? And, and by this point, Christine has lost all sense of like uh, reality. She's like, oh, I'm not going to just give her this button. I'll stick it down her goddamn throat. And, uh, well, more or less that does happen. I mean, even if she does wind up sort of fighting with this corpse that keeps floating in the rain on her. Because this is, of course, done in the middle of the night in a pouring rainstorm. I mean, poor, poor Allison Lohman there. <laughs> you just, she has been put through the ringer at this point. And, you know, you can see it in her performance of, I'm going to do this, I'm going to stop this right now, and there's nothing you can do to stop me, body. Even when, of course, the rain knocks a gravestone down onto her head and Mrs. Ganusha's body keeps floating on top of her. Yeah. Again, I was just going to say, you said that Alison Lohman has been put through the ringer. What about poor Lorna Rover, who's four times her age? Like, like, you get this kindly old woman who went into this movie thinking it's a scene about a woman at a bank. Now her corpse is being assaulted and attacked in a watery grave as Sam Raimi's spinning his camera around at 45 degree angles. We have thunderstorms. Like, her corpse is pulling pieces of Christine's hair out. I'm like, we are on full on Sam Raimi territory here. Well, at least at this point, she was probably played by a dummy, but still, that can't be fun to see happening to you. <laughs> Can you imagine her watching this movie with, her, like, her grandkids? <laughs> oh, look, Nana was in a movie. I would love to sit down with this woman and watch it, because she just... I, I remember seeing her in interviews, and she looks so sweet. <laughs> but anyway... Yeah, Christine jams open the corpse's mouth and shoves this envelope, which she thinks has the button in it, into her mouth, and what does she say? She says choke on it bitch and like shoves her mouth shut and that's really you think is the end of the movie she's given she even oh she says i make a formal gift i christine brown give this to sylvia ganush it's yours choke on it and so 
which she thinks she has beaten the curse. She's given the cursed object to this horrible old gypsy woman. And again, the gypsy woman will now be attacked by the Lamia. And all is well in the world, and the movie ends happily. Right, Matt? Oh, yeah, because we even get this, for all you um, movie symbolism people out there, there's even this whole beautiful fake rebirth image of her coming out of this watery grave. <laughs> and the sun starts shining, and we see her in the shower, and she's happy. And everything starts to work for her. Her boss calls her, tells her that Punchable Stew is fired because he uh, came begging thinking that christine was going to rat him out she gets the promotion she's ready for her vacation with clay and she even found a cute new coat that she can wear so she goes to union station in la and well this is the point where it comes in hand uh, it, it comes to bite her that she never actually told clay about what happened with the button and that the button was an important thing yeah i have to point out a little loophole here this is technically day four of the lamia I thought I thought he was supposed to come and kill her on day three. So he's a little lazy. I, I find a little I find a plot hole that maybe the story might not be realistic, Sam Raimi. Ooh, but I'm going to say this. It's possible the Lamia just has dramatic timing. <laughs> this could be OK. Yeah. So like you said, she never told Clay about the curse and the button. And now she finally reveals it. She's like, well, you know, I got a gypsy curse and there was this button and I was cursed. And that was what was going on. And he's like, oh, OK, cool. He's like, by the way, I found this. And my car the other day, you might want it back. And she holds it up and she's like, what is that? <laughs> and she opens up the envelope and she, uh, this is what she thought was his quarter. And this was the button all along that she never actually gave to Mrs. Ganoush, which means she is still holding it. Uh, it's time for the Lamia to come. And here we go. One of the all time great sucker punch endings. Take it away, Matt. Uh, where Christine is freaking out and she accidentally wanders onto the train tracks and then well, she falls onto the train tracks. Uh, Clay is screaming for her and screaming for her. And then the ground cracks open underneath her. Fire shooting out of the ground. Hands are dragging at her, digging at her flesh. This train is running over her. But through the wheels, we see as she's pulled closer and closer into the earth, into the bowels of hell itself, her face melting like she's at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then the ground closes up all around her while Clay just looks down, uh, you know, trying to process what just happened. And then... Boom! Drag me to hell. Yeah, the title card comes up again. Drag me to hell, and that's the end of the movie. Woo! Yeah, one of the darkest endings to a horror movie I've seen in the last, again, 15 years or so. Um, never will top the mist, but that is a dark ending because a movie made a promise and it held to it. Yeah, and that's the thing with Sam Raimi. Like, he... He will mess around. He will give you the jokes. He loves diffusing the tension with laughter and slapstick. But when push comes to shove, it's a horror movie, and he, he delivers at the end. It's something you never see coming until about 30 seconds before it happens. It's like, oh, my God, Christine's about to die. And here she goes dragged down to hell in this horrific sequence, and she literally will go burn for all of eternity with the Lamia and all his buddies as they will rip her flesh off and devour her slowly over the course of eternity. End of movie. All because she turned down a lady's alone. Exactly. And that right there is why ambition at your job is a bad thing. Bad things will happen if you're trying to angle for that VP position. Yep, because you never know when you might piss off a gypsy. Yeah, that is, that, that is some movie. And again, this is one, it's a very polarizing movie. I know a lot of horror fans love this, think it's like the greatest thing. I know a lot of horror fans just hate this movie because they don't think, A, it's scary enough, or B, don't think it's funny enough. They don't think it straddles the line correctly in either direction. I personally think they're nuts. Like, 
I there are very few movies that are more designed for someone like me than Drag Me to Hell. Like it's like Sam Raimi literally sat down and said, Mario, what would you like this movie to be? And I'm like, well, here's what I'd like. And he's like, how about an anvil? I'm like, yeah, put an anvil in a talking goat. So again, I know this is kind of a polarizing movie, but it's one that I think will really gain in uh, prestige over the years. In fact, I've even I read a review right when it came out from like the Cannes Film Festival, and they're like, this movie has future cult classic all over it. <laughs> It's it's a Sam Raimi movie. Any of his movies, given enough time, are going to be cult movies. Yeah. So, do you love this movie as much as I do? Again, because I could sit here and rave about it and all the things I love about it. I, I have no criticisms about this movie whatsoever. It is exactly what I want to see every time I go to a movie. I love it. I probably wouldn't rank it quite as high as you would, but I, it is one we watch when we want to have a really fun time because it is reliable for its level of just complete insanity done well. And again, I, I generally have a rule on staff picks. People ask me about this all the time. They're like, like, why don't you do newer movies? And I always say, well, a movie has to be around long enough to develop a reputation before I can say it was like underrated or doesn't give enough love. Uh, Drag Me to Hell fits within, I mean, it's actually earlier than my window. It's only nine years old at the time of this recording. So it's really one of these special occasion, special cases where I'm going to talk about a movie before it's 15 years old. Again, it's just, I have such such a level of uh, love for this movie that it's almost nothing else of the last 10 years comes close. Yeah, come to think of it, I think the, the last movie we did was also very recent. So next time we get together, we got to do something on the older end. Yeah, we got to do like a 1940s horror movie, like a Hammer movie or something. Ooh, always freaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Matt, again, Matt is my go-to guy for these horror movies. Although, I will say that you were cutting me off a lot in this podcast, Matt, so I'm putting a gypsy curse on you. So I'm just letting you know. So happy next three days. Uh, that's what happens when I love something. What can I say? It comes back to bite me. Well, hopefully people enjoyed this episode. Again, we had fun talking about it. I know horror movies aren't everybody's cup of tea, and uh, I, I love having horror movies on this show to talk about them just because I think it's such a uh, under-respected genre. And it's one of these things like almost anybody can make a great horror movie if they have enough skill, even with a minor budget. And that's what I love about them. You don't need a lot of money. You just need inventiveness, creativity, and just a, a innate sense of being able to tell an effective story. And that's why I'm such a big uh, proponent of horror movies. And it's, it is often one of the things I've always said about horror movies. It is so off, it is so easy to trick an audience into seeing something with a lot of depth um, because horror can often hide a lot of themes about, you know, just current anxieties of the world and of people, and it, there's a lot of truth in horror. Yeah, and like in 2009, remember everybody was scared of gypsies? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> couldn't go anywhere, and yeah, that's gypsy fear. Yeah, gypsy, I mean, they were just crawling across the country back then. It was a, it was a scary time. Yeah. We can get into this one another time. Yeah, you, you couldn't turn down anyone for a bank loan. It was a dark time. Hey, this was around the time of the economic collapse. There's bound to have been a little something of that in there. Yeah. Now, I've read reviews that say this is like the first economic collapse horror movie because it's all about someone being turned down for a bank loan. <laughs> That's a good one. That, that is a point that I think is there at the very least. And like I said at the start, it's like Up. It's really the story of someone who is losing their beloved, cherished house. And which way are you going to go with that when that happens to you? Are you going to maybe run off and take balloons to your house and fly it off and live a whimsical fantasy? Or are you going to put a gypsy curse on someone and drag them to hell? Your choice. Actually, my answer to that is, can't we have both? Exactly. You say tomato, I say tomato. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> okay. 
Matt, before we sign off, anything else? Anything you're working on? Any books? How can people reach you if they want to hear more from you? Okay, well, I do have a book coming out uh, next month uh, in August of 2018 with my wife. Um, it is Pinnacle City, a superhero noir. This is a very fun, uh, dark little book with lots of twists and turns that we are very happy with. Um, you can find my author website at mattcarterauthor.weebly.com. Uh, and I can be found on Facebook. This is usually the easier way to get me at facebook.com slash mattcarterauthor. And in your book, Is Anybody Dragged to Hell? Uh, not in this book. My previous superhero book, sort of. But <laughs> not this time. It's a common Matt Carter trope. What can I say? I love me. I like my demons. Okay, again, this is Staff Picks. My name is Mario Lanza. If you have any feedback, comments, movies to suggest for me to do, you can reach me, staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter, at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there searching for more underrated, underloved, underrepresented movies in the world, and I will find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye! Bye. Soon it will be you who comes begging to me.